to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. Joshua, chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. So, Joshua, chapter 5. Now, um, one of my favorite Christian symbols, the Cairo, came into use sometime around the 200s. It looks something like a, a P intersecting with an X with an alpha and an omega on either side and then a victor's laurel surrounding it. Now, it's one of my favorite Christian symbols because of what it represents. The chi and the rho are uh, the first two Greek letters of uh, the Greek rendering for Christ. The alpha and the omega on either side communicate that Jesus Christ is divine, that he is the beginning and he is the end. And then the victor's laurel that surrounds the symbol itself, declares that Jesus Christ is the victor. So when you see the Cairo with its laurel, it is making a statement that Christ is the victor. The Cairo uh, made its first appearance in common culture when the future, the then future Emperor Constantine fought against his rival Maxentius at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. The story goes that the day before the battle, Constantine, uh, who was at that point a pagan, uh, saw the Cairo in the sky and he heard a voice that said, In this sign you shall conquer. And then Constantine had his soldiers paint the symbol on their shields. Now he won the battle and he credited that vision uh, and he credited Christ with giving him the victory. And uh, we see later on that he put a stop to the persecution that Christians had previously endured in the Roman Empire, and then he himself uh, converted over to Christianity. Now, it's hard to say, because scholars debate, whether or not Constantine's conversion was really because he saw a political opportunity, or if he really did come in that day to revere Jesus as God. Historians argue about that back and forth. Uh, we may never know. But whatever the case, Constantine did play an important role in the history of the church. And uh, from there on, especially after he became Rome's emperor, God brought relief to the persecuted church in Rome through him. And he played an important role in the, in the history of the church as it continued on. Now the Cairo communicates the all-important reality that Jesus Christ truly is the victor. He is the conqueror of sin and death. His death and his resurrection have put an end to the power of Satan. And he has secured victory for his people for all time, now and forever. And that is really why I find the Cairo so compelling. The victory of Christ is the hope of every believer. God is the mighty warrior who rescues his people. We, we've celebrated that great reality this morning as we've sung and as we've prayed. We have, we have exalted our Lord King Jesus and we have said and we believe that he will be exalted as the victorious Lord forever and ever. And we are his people if we've been united to him by faith. Now the victory of Christ was looked forward to and it was anticipated in the book of Joshua. Joshua is not just a history book. It's God's word. And God's word records God's work of deliverance throughout history with the purpose of exalting God's greatest work of salvation in Jesus. And this morning we're going to be looking specifically at God's role as the deliverer of his people and as the holy judge 
of the earth. Let's begin by reading our passage. Uh, If you would, please stand once more for the reading of God's word. We're in Joshua chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword, his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, before we launch into our text this morning, I have a, just a brief word about the structure of this passage. Uh, we ended last week with verse 12. That's because verse 13 really opens a whole new chapter of content that leads us into the Battle of Jericho. Uh, we're only going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 as we've read this morning. But as we do, I do want to let you know and I'll point out that it's, pro- it's best to understand and to look through that chapter division that our, our translations make. Uh, it's probably best to see Joshua uh, chapter 5 starting in verse 13 all the way through chapter 6 verse 5 as, as one whole unit. So uh, the chapter divisions that are in our Bibles and the verses, they are a helpful tool. They're not inspired. They're not in the original text. But And I think that as we look at this passage, we're supposed to understand that the appearance of this commander is meant to flow into the instruction that Joshua received from God on how he and the people were to conduct their operations against the city of Jericho. So that's just a quick word on the structure of the text that's going to kind of guide us as we look into the meaning of this passage and its significance for us. As we do, I think that there's a fundamental question here that serves as the, the linchpin, the thing on which all of this hangs, for the understanding the significance of this text for us. This whole ordeal begins with Joshua's question, whose side are you on? And the response that this mysterious warrior gives him actually turns the question around and it asks that question of us. So the message of our text and the point of my sermon this morning really is, and the main idea, is that our allegiance must belong to the Lord. Our allegiance must belong to the Lord. Most of our time this morning is going to be centered on answering three big questions about this mysterious warrior who appeared to Joshua. Uh, And I'm sure there are questions that you want to know because as I was studying, these are questions I wanted to know. Uh, Simply, we want to know, who is this warrior? What has he come to do? And what can we learn about Joshua's response to him about what it means to give God our allegiance? So from our study of Joshua's encounter, I want to flesh out three ways that God calls us to give our allegiance to him. So these will be our three points this morning. First, God calls us to give our allegiance to him by replacing our priorities with God's. God's priorities must become our priorities. Second, 
we are called to rest in the work of our Redeemer. We're called to rest in the work of our Redeemer. And then finally, we are called to revere God in His holiness. So, three actions here. We are to replace, we are to rest, and we are to revere. And they all have to do with responding to God uh, with allegiance and that is due Him. So we want to first look at how we show our allegiance to God by re- replacing our priorities with His. Uh, God's work of salvation cannot be reduced to just rescue. God's redemption is rescue, but it is more than that. His work of salvation involves also involves transformation. That transformation is essential. It shows us the completeness of God's work of redemption. When, when a person is saved from sin, they aren't just rescued from the consequences of that sin, they are rescued from the dominion of that sin, from the rule of sin. And just as a person who leaves one kingdom to become part of another must adopt the priorities of the kingdom that he joins, so the redeemed of the Lord must adopt the priorities of King Jesus. So that's what we want to look at in our first point here. This point is made very clearly, though perhaps somewhat subtly, in the opening words that Joshua has with this mysterious warrior. We're told in verse 13 that Joshua had made his way to Jericho, presumably by himself. Now, uh, you'll notice that this whole encounter is really noticeably light on some of the details that we want to know about here. Uh, We're not told what time of day it was. We're uh, we're not told whether or not Joshua was actually by himself when this took place. We're not told how close Joshua was to Jericho when he had this encounter. We're not even told what compelled him to go there in the first place. That's because our author is not interested at all in answering any of those questions. He's more concerned that we fix our eyes on the man that Joshua met there. He tells us that while Joshua was there by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and saw a man standing there with a drawn sword. Now, having read ahead, we know that this is no mere man, but he has the appearance of a man. And so Joshua presumably assumes as much as he himself, he goes to meet this warrior with the drawn sword. Now, this, I think, we get a real good idea of the kind of man that Joshua was by the way he went into this, uh, to meet this dangerous stranger. Joshua was a man of war. He was not the kind of man who hid behind the companies of his soldiers. He himself went to meet this man, though he did not recognize him or know whether or not this man was a friend or an enemy. And he asked him, Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? Basically, whose side are you on? And to our astonishment, and I'm sure to Joshua's, the man standing before him replied, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, I just want to pause there and just soak in the answer that Joshua received to his question. First of all, we should be impressed with the dangerous position that Joshua is in here. The man standing before him, we find, is no mere man. Joshua hasn't inadvertently run into Jericho's picket line. He's standing before the commander of the army of the Lord who has met, who has met Joshua with a drawn sword. 
The last time we saw that phrase being used, we were being told about how the angel of the Lord was standing on the road ready to kill Balaam, the wicked prophet for hire, because he had gone against God's command with the king of Moab to go curse the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt. This is, this is also the same phrase that is used when David saw God ready to judge Israel standing with a drawn sword over Jerusalem when he had taken a, an unwise and unlawful sin, census of the people. It also reminds me of when God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword before the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had broken God's command not to eat of the forbidden tree. So when we see this man standing there with a drawn sword, our blood should run cold. The man standing before Joshua is truly dangerous. The sword he carries is the kind of sword that brings nations to their knees. Now, you might have a chance of escaping a Navy SEAL. No one escapes the sword of the commander of the army of heaven. When the commander of the army of heaven stands before you with a drawn sword, doom and judgment are close at hand. This is a, a dangerous place to be. And the danger of Joshua's position is, is only further magnified by the, the way this great and powerful warrior answers Joshua's question. Joshua comes to him and says, Whose side are you on? And the answer he gets back is, No. What do you make of that? Well, it's important that we recognize the significance of how the commander of the army of the Lord answered Joshua first by fundamentally shutting down Joshua's question and the categories he asked about. Now, Joshua was an accomplished warrior, but he's clearly outclassed by the man standing in front of him. The categories of Joshua's question didn't apply to this man because he's above them. Joshua is thinking about earthly terms. This man is from heaven. And the position of this commander is, is not determined by the priorities of Israel or the priorities of the Jerichoites. This commander had come with a sword drawn because his priority was to do the will of God. And God, we see, had determined to bring Israel into the land. So, with a simple no, the tables are quickly turned on Joshua here. Joshua may have asked the warrior standing in front of him whose side he was on, but with a little word, suddenly the question is being put back to Joshua. The real question is not whose side is this man on, but whose side is Joshua on? God showed great favor to Israel when he said he was going to bring them into a good land, a land where he would dwell with them and bless them and make them a blessing to the whole earth as he had promised their fathers. But the answer this commander gave to Joshua makes it clear that God never put himself at Israel's disposal. God is not a magic genie in a lamp. He's not a gumball machine that you put a quarter in and you get something out of him. When God designs to act on our behalf or the behalf of anyone, he does so out of the overflow of his grace with perfect and pure motives to the praise of his glory and of his holiness. That's why the commander of the army of the Lord answered Joshua the way that he did. 
Joshua was thinking in categories categories that were too small and so his answer challenges Joshua's categories and shows him that there was a higher priority here than the simple military victory of Israel over the forces of the Canaanites that simple no reminded Joshua and it reminds us that we are part of God's story he's the main character he's the warrior he's the sustainer the perfecter he is the victor We're like pieces of glass set in place, part of the mosaic of the grand story of God's exaltation. By God's grace, we become part of His kingdom through faith. But do not forget that He is the king of that kingdom. As we benefit from the blessings of God's favor, we are folded into the greater story of His beauty, the story that will redound forever through the halls of heaven. Now, I don't think we should take this answer uh, as if the commander of the armies of the Lord is rebuking Joshua. But he does set a sort of guardrail before him, doesn't he? It's easy for us to equate human priorities with God's. to to think that our priorities must be God's. After all, he said that he's our friend. Joshua and the people of Israel had come into the promised land at the command of God with the clear demonstration of God's mighty power. God told Joshua, we saw at the very beginning of of this book, that he was with him and that therefore Joshua was to be strong and to be courageous. But that promise did not mean that Joshua or the people could ever expect to enjoy the blessings that God said he was going to give them in that land if they themselves didn't align themselves with God and with his priorities for them. After all, the covenant that God made with Israel carried a blessing and a curse. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, Moses tells the people, See, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I am commanding you to go after other gods that you have not known. So God had even gone to the extent of telling Joshua to be strong and courageous, but he had also told him to be very strong and very courageous, to be careful to keep the commands of God's holy law. Joshua needed to remember that the goal of this was not that God was suddenly aligning himself for a time with Israel's priorities, but that Israel was to align themselves with God. When Joshua met this commander on the plains of Jericho, He didn't have to fear this drawn sword because it hadn't been drawn out of its sheath for Joshua. There were were times, however, where the sword of God's judgment did fall on Israel. And it fell when Israel broke God's commandments and when they abandoned him with their hearts. God rightly prioritizes his glory. He is right to do this because there is nothing so mu- of so much worth or value in any other thing. And yet, as we sang earlier in our foolishness, we sometimes find our love growing cold and we find ourselves prioritizing other things as worthy in and of themselves rather than the gifts that they are. That is why worldliness is so awful. It's like celebrating the painting or the sculpture and forgetting about the artist. It's like praising a building and forgetting the architect. James warns us not to fall prey to 
to worldly priorities. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or, or war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? The the lesson of Joshua's question in this commander's response is that we ourselves must prioritize our allegiance to God by replacing our priorities with God's priorities. This is God's remedy to worldliness. The spirit of James when he says, God opposes the proud that gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So a soldier receives his priorities from his commanding officer. A servant receives uh, the, his, he measures his success by the pleasure of his master whom he serves. A child's joy is never fuller when she makes her parents glad through obedience. If we are soldiers of Christ, if we are servants of the Most High King, if we are sons and daughters of God, then we must be resolved to receive by the mercy of God his priorities and his purposes to make them our own, to replace the desires of our hearts with his, to learn to be content in every circumstance because we are content and satisfied in him who is our unshakable rock and our redeemer. I think that this is a timely lesson for us to receive from Joshua. Uh, Dale Davis remarks in his commentary on this passage, sometimes we need to see that Yahweh is not so much partisan as sovereign. It is right that God should rule. We should never have it any other way. When I worked for Aldi, um, we used to say, we don't match other stores' prices because that would mean raising ours. Well, for God to govern his priorities by ours would mean lowering the excellence of his. His priorities are not driven by the changing circumstances of His creation. They are steadfast and sure because they flow out of the excellence of who He is. They cannot be reduced to the priorities of man because that would make them unworthy. Rather, it is man's duty to conform himself to the priorities of God. He is a good king and he is worthy and he is able to be trusted with that priority and we have to remember that with uh, as I prayed earlier with the 2020 presidential election it is important for us to ask ourselves honestly honestly if we really believe that King Jesus reigns and that he is victorious and that his priorities are worthy of our allegiance Let us investigate the priorities of our heart to determine whether or not we are looking to lesser saviors to deliver us. Let Grace Baptist Church set its hope and its seal to this. Not that by following Christ we might somehow get him to sponsor our priorities, but rather that by following Christ we may, by the power of his Holy Spirit, resolve to take up his priorities and to trust that in life and in death our only comfort is knowing that we are not our own, but we belong with body and soul, both in life and in death 
to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of our sins with His precious blood and has set us free from the power of the devil, who also preserves us in such a way that by the will of our Heavenly Father not a hair can fall from our head, for indeed all things work together for our good and our salvation. God's response to Joshua here requires us to abandon the categories of human wisdom and understanding for His. How else can we receive Jesus' word that if any man would be His disciple, he must deny himself and take up a cross before he can follow Him? How else can we say things like what Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain? How else can we say that it is better to give than to receive How can we say otherwise that we do not count our lives of any value but desire only that we should run our race and receive the prize that makes all suffering that we could ever endure in this world nothing in light of the glory of knowing Christ our King. So let our prayers be not O God, are you for us? But, oh God, we know you are faithful because you have wielded the sword of judgment that we deserved against Christ. And his blood has paid the price fully. And we give ourselves to you and we trust you and we ask that you would make our priorities match yours. Oh God, satisfy us in you, the great I am, the warrior of your people. So, allegiance to God looks first like adopting God's priorities for us. Second, we must rest in the work of our Redeemer. God is worthy of our allegiance. We must align ourselves. We must endeavor to live by God's grace, to adopt His priorities and His categories as our own, and we must also rest in His work of redemption. Why do you think, on the eve of battle with the city of Jericho, that Joshua met with the commander of the army of heaven? Why? Why now? Well, was it not to show Joshua that the coming victory was not by his might or the prowess of Israel's warriors or by the genius of military innovation, but that Israel was going to succeed against Jericho because, we see in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, the Lord had given Jericho into Joshua's hand. Once again, God is emphasizing that he is faithful to keep his promises, and that he is the deliverer of his people. Now, if you're like me, there is this question burning in your mind. Sure, we know. Joshua was talking to the commander of the army of the Lord. But who is this really? Is this an, is this an angel? Is this an archangel? Is he something more than that? Well, it's more than a question of curiosity because uh, he, when he states his title and we hear what he's come to do and we see Joshua respond the way that he does, it's very hard not to think that the warrior standing before Joshua isn't God himself. In fact, I think there's a strong case to be argued that this is in fact a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Similar to what we see when, when, uh, when God appeared beside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king of Babylon saw the one true God. At minimum, at minimum, this is it's debated, so 
really struggled with how to bring this to you because I don't want to say, well, this is Jesus because the New Testament doesn't tell us that. But I think there are some reasons to think that at minimum we have to say this warrior is a type or a shadow of Jesus that looks forward to and helps us better understand who Jesus is. I want to give you three reasons why I think the commander of the army of heaven that stood before Joshua is Christ himself. Um, there are more reasons, but I think these are some of the most compelling. So, first reason. We see that Joshua's encounter mirrors very, very, very closely Moses' experience of God when God appeared to him at the burning bush on Mount Sinai, which you can read about in Exodus 3. And I would encourage you uh, this week, even this afternoon, go ahead, read that passage and compare it to what we read here and see that there's not a comparison here. A uh, couple points you want to notice here. There in Exodus 3, the text starts off by telling us that the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the bush. But then as you read through the rest of the chapter, in verse 6, we find that the text explicitly tells us that it's God himself. We're told that Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. It makes sense that God would appear to Joshua as he did to Moses. After all, he told Joshua that he would be with him just as he was with Moses to bring the people into the land. That interpretation is further confirmed if we understand, as I think we ought to, that Joshua 5, verse 13, and Joshua 6, verse 2, happened at the same time, with the same encountered, the way they think the text is supposed to be read. So in Joshua 6, 2, we're told that the Lord himself spoke to Joshua these battle plans. It makes sense to understand that the commander of the army of the Lord is the Lord himself who said he was going to, that he himself was going to fight for Israel and split the Canaanites, even as he did the Jordan River. That's the first reason. second reason I think this is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ is that we see uh, something about the way that Joshua responded to, to, this, to this commander. We see that Joshua fell down on his face and he worshipped the warrior for who he was. No mere angel would ever receive worship like that because no mere angel is worthy of receiving such worship. We notice here that the commander of the army of the Lord doesn't stop Joshua from worshiping. Rather, he furthers Joshua's worship. He tells him to remove his sandals since he's on a holy ground the exact same way that God told Moses to remove his sandals when he was before the burning bush. Nowhere in the Bible do you ever see a place being considered holy because an angelic being appeared there. But you do see places being declared as holy because God comes in a special way to that place. And you only see reactions like what Joshua has when people encounter God. That's the second reason. Third reason, the role of this commander is elsewhere attributed specifically to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, there's a few places we could go for this. I want to point out two to you. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, John the Baptist is speaking of Christ. He says, I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. That's a, that's a way of expressing judgment. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's judgment. John the Baptist attributes judgment and salvation to Jesus himself. 
which reflects the way this commander stood before Joshua, ready to wield the sword of heaven against Jericho. Uh, more specific examples in Revelation chapter 19, there uh, the Apostle John describes Jesus' second coming. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If that passage doesn't qualify Jesus as the commander of the armies of heaven, I don't know what does. And though we may not have it explicitly stated to us that Jesus was the commander who stood before Joshua, I think we have to understand at minimum that, Josh, that, that what Joshua saw has been now and finally will be fulfilled in no one else but Christ. Now, why is it worth going into that? Well, it's important for us to see this connection between the warrior who met Joshua and, and Jesus, our king, because Jesus is, is, uh, well, is because our allegiance to God is not possible apart from the work of Christ as he put sin and death to death on the cross by with which he dealt the fatal blow to the kingdom of sin and by which he will judge the enemies of God. In 1 John, we read this. We read that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2 verse 14 explains more. It says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It then goes on to say that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or, or payment for the sins of the people. So our victory, our life, the promise of eternal life depends on nothing less than the conquest of this divine warrior. And because Jesus has been crowned in victory, all who trust in him for their salvation can know that we have been rescued from the sins and the trespasses in which we once walked according to the power of the wicked priest that the wicked prince that we were enslaved to and we have been set free and we can rest in God because this divine warrior came and crushed the head of the serpent Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd that he laid down his life for his sheep and for this reason, he says, the Father loves him and has set his love on us. And because he has taken up his life again, there is now one flock of one faith under one faithful shepherd, Jesus Christ. We owe God our allegiance, but that allegiance is impossible apart from the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the victor. 
So we've seen that God, we, God deserves our allegiance. And we've seen how we can align ourselves with Him by adopting His priorities and by resting in His redemption. Finally, we want to see that we are called to revere God in His holiness. Joshua models allegiance to God by showing us that we need to subject ourselves to God's priorities and by teaching us to hope in the work of God's redemption. But he also teaches us to revere God for his holiness. In the second part of verse 14, after Joshua, we see, had fallen on his face in worship, he asked, What does my Lord say to his servant?" Now, we might expect this commander to immediately start discussing battle plans with Joshua. After all, commander to commander, you want to put your heads together and go, go assail the walls, right? Well, that's not the case. His answer, the answer of this commander, actually focuses on Joshua's reverence. He says, take off your sandals from your feet, Joshua, for the place where you are standing is holy. And we see that Joshua did so. Now, we can rightfully think of Joshua, the book of Joshua, as a book of battles. But so far as we've seen, those battles really aren't the focus of this book. Uh, rather, the book of Joshua magnifies the glory of God as the keeper of his promises. And then it beckons us to consider how we are supposed to humble ourselves before a holy God. And in this particular account, encounter, Joshua really gives us a model of what it looks like to revere God and His holiness. And so I want to look at how he does that on the rest of our time. First, we see that Joshua revered God in His holiness by eagerly listening to the word that God had for him to hear. Joshua showed reverence for God by listening. As Moses' assistant... Joshua had a constant example of what it looked like to listen to God. He also saw the consequences of what happened when people did not listen to God, such as when Moses, in his anger, struck the rock instead of speaking to it as God had commanded him and was thereby banned from entering the land of promise. Joshua treasured the word of the Lord, and we see his eagerness to receive what the commander of the army of the Lord had to say to him. God's word is powerful. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light to our path. A faithful guide that teaches us who we are and how we should respond to a holy God. Joshua treasured what God had to say because he treasured God. And so we see that he is a faithful example of a person who has aligned himself with the will of God. Second, and related to Joshua's eagerness to hear God's word, we see that Joshua was eager to obey God. So he didn't want to just hear what the commander had to say. Joshua also wanted to put it into practice. Now, Joshua was the leader and the commander of the nation of Israel. We know that God had appointed him to lead the armies of Israel into the promised land. But when he meets this warrior, we see total submission. When a, a president, when our president goes and meets a foreign dignitary, and maybe he's traveling to meet someone, there's usually a show of, of mutual respect, right? Well, this is not that. This is Joshua saying, I may be the leader of Israel, but I'm submitted to you. Joshua did not consider the position that God had appointed for him to take to exempt him from humble obedience and service to God. He knew his place, and he quickly fell in line with the priorities of his king and his Lord. It's one thing to read the Bible. It is one thing to know theology. And those are both good things. 
But knowledge is worthless if it's not put into practice. James tells us that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. For to live in any other way would mean that we are deceiving ourselves. The word of God is like a mirror that shows us who we are and tells us why we must clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. It is not the hearer of the word who is blessed, but the doer of the word. Thirdly, we see that Joshua humbled himself. Joshua revered the holiness of God by humbling himself. We see that Joshua took his sandals off when he was instructed because he knew that the place was holy and he knew that the presence of the person he was in was holy. Humility, humility is not weakness. Humility is not weakness. It's in submission to God that true strength is found. Christ's humility is what accomplished our salvation. Paul told the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that means though he, was, though he, had the, though he has the divine nature, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not count himself above what his Father's will but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful cross. Joshua humbled himself by bowing before the commander of the army of the Lord and by taking his shoes off in the presence of holiness. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, humbled himself by bowing himself lower to take on a human nature, subtraction by addition. And he made a holy offering at the cost of his own blood so as to remove the burden of sin and the sentence of death from his people. It is a fearful thing to be in the presence of true holiness. A, a lion has a certain glory and majesty and we may marvel at that but I doubt that any one of us would want to come face to face with one without some sort of barrier between us and it how much more glorious is the sun and yet you'll go blind if you stare at it and you'll be burned by it if you try to stand in a light that it emanates too long in Job 38 God asked Job, Can you hunt the prey for the lion to satisfy the appetite for the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the way to the thicket? He says, Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God feeds the lions. Genesis 1 tells us that God created the sun and set it on its course. It comes like a strong man across the sky because God told it where to go. God spoke the sun into being and told it where to run. Scientists tell us that it is a happy accident that the earth is able to sustain life because we are just the right distance for the sun to make life possible here. And yet we know because of God's word that this is no mere accident. Life is here because God is wise and powerful and good and because he is the world's designer. 
the the God who breathes out stars, who says, let there be, and there is, who sets boundaries for the waters, who feeds the lion and the young raven, who feeds the hummingbird and the great whales, is worthy of your humility and your allegiance because he is a worthy and true king. Joshua shows us what allegiance to God looks like. He shows us how God's priorities must become our own. He shows us what it means to rest in God's redemption. And he shows us how to humble ourselves before God's holiness. This is where Christian contentment lies. This is where true joy and satisfaction come from. May God, in his grace, give us hearts such as like Joshua. Let's pray. Oh God, what would be our reaction if the commander of the army of heaven stood before us with drawn sword? We would be right to fear. We have sinned. We deserve the judgment of that sword. And yet the sword of your judgment was quenched when it was plunged into the breast of your Holy Son. And the life we share in with Him is possible because He conquered sin and death, nailing our offenses on the cross and has risen from the dead in glory. And we confess that we are the people of your pasture because you have opened up our hearts to see your beauty and you have beckoned us to come before you not as enemies to be judged but as children to be loved and father you have placed us on a path here and now to be your people to be faithful witnesses of what we have seen and heard and experienced and understood from your spirit as he teaches us your word. And we ask God that you would raise us up in the power of King Jesus as his great army, as his body here on earth. And as you do, we would wield the sword that makes the wounded whole. The word of the gospel and that you would bring many, many more sons and daughters into the fold of your kingdom. Give us eyes for you, O oh God. Teach us to have allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. And let our hope flow from the steadfast nature of who you are. We pray all this in the glorious name of King Jesus the victor. Amen.